Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. I would like to scan all of you in this room one at a time. Uh, I must remind you that the scanning experience is usually a painful one, sometimes resulting in nosebleeds, earaches, stomach cramps, whoa, nausea. Whoa, 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 wait, wait, Joe. You can't just scan everybody in the room. Well, why not? Well, did you get everyone to sign those consent forms? Oh, I, I figured they show up for a press conference. They must be game for a little telepathy. But they might have pre-existing health conditions. I mean, you just warn them that they might get cramps and nosebleeds. <laughs> you know, mild nosebleeds. I mean... We're not going to catch anybody on fire or well, anything. What about their mental health? What about their privacy? The right, to, the right to freedom of thought and the deliberate communication. Well, that's not what this experiment is about. And that doesn't even touch on the fact that you can scan their smartphones and laptops with your mind. I mean, that's not quite as bad as peering into their private thoughts, dreams, and fears. But nobody wants that either. Jeez, Robert, I was really looking forward to this, and I have to report that you are now being a major buzzkill. Hey, I'm sorry. I know you are. I know you are. Mm, yeah. Ooh, bit of a migraine forming here. Okay, I'm good. Whew. That was a close one. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And if you haven't guessed already, today we're going to be talking about telepathy. Scanning, as it's often called in the literature. Yes, yes. Uh, I, I imagine a number of you uh, identified our uh, homage there to uh, to David Cronenberg's uh, uh, sci-fi classic, Scanners. You know what I found out just this week is that Scanners has a huge uh, uh, catalog of sequels oh, that yes. I was unaware of. I knew there was a Scanners 2 mm-hmm. that's got some corrupt police commissioner with an army of Scanners. But there's a Scanners 3 that has a scene where a woman makes a pigeon blow up. Yep. With her mind. And then I had no idea about this until you told me, but there's a spin-off series called Scanner Cop. Yes. Scanner Cop One and then Scanner Cop Two, which is also sometimes essentially Scanners Four, depending on which uh, version of the release you're looking at. You know, one of the funny things about the development of the Scanners series, at least as far as I can tell, I haven't watched all of the movies. They, they, most of the sequels look quite bad, uh, but there is a sort of slow development or escalation of the powers that are attributed to scanners. Mm-hmm. I can remember in the first movie, you can read somebody's thoughts oh, yes. and you can also sort of, I, I think plant implant thoughts to a certain extent. Um, and then of course you can cause the resonant frequency cascade that makes their head blow up. Right. And I think you can make fire and you can, uh, you can, Oh, well then also there's at least a, uh, I don't want to give too many spoilers, but it's at least mentioned that you might be able to absorb another individual's mind state into your own. Okay, so it, that's pretty godlike. It's getting pretty weird, even in the first movie. But okay. later on, you add uh, what would conventionally be called telekinesis, where you're throwing things around, you throw people across the room. Mm-hmm. So you're just generally developing psychic powers. Yeah, it goes into that realm of uh, of essentially magic. Yeah, yeah. Pan, pan psychic sorcery. Yeah, uh, but telepathy is something that. I, I can understand why that happens because it's a concept that I thought I think has been interpreted in various ways that are often quite vague. So as much as I hate to go to the dictionary at the beginning of a discussion, I do think it's helpful to get a, a specified common definition on the table for telepathy. And, and I want to go with one included in Merriam-Webster, which it just says communication from one mind to another by extrasensory means. Okay. So I think that's what we're going to be talking about today. It's sharing ideas, it's communication without using any of the senses. Right, so, because we're using our, our senses and our, our language abilities, our vocal abilities right now. Yeah. Uh, we're, we're engaging in a, in, in, in a communication, in yeah. a communal thought process. Yeah, like but, right now, a man walks into a bar and there's a duck on the bar. I just put that image into your head. I just put that image into everyone's head. I essentially use my scanner powers on everyone listening to this podcast. But there was a fidelity copying problem there because when I pictured in my brain, what I pictured was a swan. Ah, there you go. (laughs) And that sort of gets to the basic problem of communication. One of the reasons we often imagine the idea of telepathy as we defined it for the purpose of this episode, communication without 
uh, words or any of the normal sensory means is that those normal canonical means of communication are highly flawed, like our ability to use them is far from perfect. Just think how often there's a conflict in your life because somebody took something that you said or wrote the wrong way. Yeah. Or because he, or because you don't know how to interpret what somebody said or wrote. If only you could truly understand what their intentions and feelings about the subject really were without everything being garbled through this language transmission mediator then then things would seem to be a lot easier, right? Yeah, I mean, there was a study that came out earlier this year talking about how um, I think they were mainly looking at uh, you know situations between spouses where individuals have known each other for a, an extended period of time. They've um, uh, they have this 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 long relationship and this collaboration going on, and you would think, oh, well, they're they've been they've been together so long, they totally understand each other, they can totally read each other's intents, and they know what the other person wants and values uh-huh. but uh the uh, uh this particular study found that it was kind of the the opposite in many cases because you end up having an idea in your head of what that other individual wants and needs and it yeah. may not actually be accurate but you're no longer uh feeling it out as much anymore because it's it, you feel like it's written in stone yeah you like everything you say because i know you i'm interpreting through the the lens of what i think about robert mm-hmm so even though all you said was, hey, can you uh, can you grab a cup of coffee from the kitchen? I'm thinking, why is he asking for a satanic ritual? <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's just so much that can that can become lost and ambiguous and just misinterpreted entirely. Of course, most of us are familiar with telepathy from fiction. That's why we started off with an example from a, a fictional sci-fi horror movie. Uh-huh. Uh, and, and certainly... Fiction gives us plenty of wonderful, rich examples, uh, and, and so, some more thoughtful than others. Yeah, yeah. Of course, there's like The Shining in The Shining. Mm-hmm. You know, the the title of The Shining refers to this this uh, sort of telepathic ability, though it seems to extend beyond just communication telepathy. It's more just like we've mentioned earlier, the general psychic awareness, being able to sense things that are beyond what we can normally see with our see or hear senses. Yes, they have a, a sensory. It's like they have a sensory ability that everyone has, but theirs is amped up uh, to an incredible level. So they're right. constantly bombarded with the signals. You you can finally hear the red rum resolve from the background noise. Yeah. Another one that comes to my mind is, uh, I assume you've seen The Dark Crystal, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, do you Dark remember Crystal. the Gelfling Dream Fast in that? Vaguely. That's, uh, that's when uh, Jen and Kira... I believe, yeah, so. the two Gelflings meet yeah. and they sort of, they kind of have this mind meld moment where they share visions of their childhood, right? Yeah, they share their memories. It seems mm-hmm. like, uh, it's been a while since I've seen the movie, but it is a great movie. And what I remember is that they, they just sort of download their memories directly from one another. Yeah. So you can suddenly remember the other one's life. Uh, another one, of course, is Spock's Vulcan mind meld in oh, Star yeah. Trek. <laughs> and that seems, also kind of like the the dream fast from what i recall that it's not just like a single coded message being traded between minds but it's like a i've got your consciousness in me now yeah does that is that pretty much right yeah i believe so it's it's uh, it's been a while since i've seen any trek with actual mind melding moments but yeah all right well a few that came to my mind well first of all uh th- i was wondering do you think that these spice orgies in dune count there's <laughs> it's not directly mentioned as i recall that and I could be wrong on this, uh, that there's a, a telepathic uh, link. And certainly I, I think the uh, the spice is going to affect individuals at you know, varying levels. Well, this is a problem I've read about in some of the, the skeptical literature on uh, telepathy is that it's difficult to tell the difference between mm-hmm. different types of extrasensory perception that people have claimed. So yeah. like, how can you tell the functional difference between telepathy and precognition or telepathy and clairvoyance? Yeah. Uh, I mean, so I, I think that comes through in Dune. Our trouble here may just be that there's general psychic hyper awareness. Yeah. Can you tell the difference between am I reading your mind or am I standing atop the dune viewing the, the great order of the universe? And one of the things I gain awareness of is what you would be thinking or saying. Yes. Yeah. That's a good point. Um, another one that comes to mind, this one's hot on, uh, uh in, in my memory, uh, since uh, I just watched the, the whole thing, but, uh, the, the Marvel Netflix series Jessica Jones 
has the the villain Purple Man Zebediah Kilgrave, and uh, fabulous uh, fabulous villain that uh, uses mind control. Uh, what he but uh, what he commands you to do, you want to do. You don't just turn into a, a zombie. They just have a nice exploration of this to where if he puts an impulse in your mind, like that's the thing you want. So that's um, not just communication. That's full on mind control. Yeah, but it's it, it kind of leaks into some of the stuff we're going to talk later in that he kind of it's kind of I get the impression that uh, Kilgrave is kind of temporarily thinking with your brain. And mm-hmm. so he's thinking with your brain and giving you, uh, you know, something to to want, something to believe in that you know or, or desire that you normally would not. Well, that blurs a line that'll become important later in this episode when we talk about scientific studies. Yeah, indeed. And uh, and another thing about Kilgrave is that, you know, it raises the question that if there's an outside force making you want or believe something temporarily and then that force eventually, is, you know, its, its influence is gone. Uh, how does that affect what you're going to believe or want in the long term? You know, yeah. like how does that memory inform? Can you remember that you wanted something but recognize that it was not original to your mind? Yeah. Indeed. So I thought that was a some, there were some some excellent explorations of that uh, in in that particular show hmm. um, in the vamp in the vampire novel by John Steakley, uh Vampires, where the S is um, a dollar sign, <laughs> uh, which was adapted into John Carpenter's movie. But believe me, the, the book oh, is much no. better. Yeah, the the book is, oh. is really really frightening and terrifying, and the, the movie the vamp- is just hideous. Yeah, <laughs> but the vampires in the book they uh, they engage in in mind control that's very similar to to Kilgrave. Okay, and from the world of Dungeons and Dragons, I feel like I need to mention just a couple of uh, species real quick. There's of course the meld communal meditation of the fungal myconid species. <laughs> okay, uh, you know shambling fungus people, benevolent that live in the underdark, but yeah, they engage in a kind of uh, communal meditation. Oh, nice. And then also there are the the hive mind colony, colonies of the illithid mind flayers. And they're, of course, just catastrophically evil uh, beings. That, and they're using all uh, just about every shade of, uh, of psychic uh, power and telepathic power to, to work uh, uh, their evil schemes in the Underdark. They, they strike terror just by directly transmitting the pages of the monster manual that feature <laughs> them into your brain. Yeah, and and they um, also it's like a whole host of uh, underdark creatures in Dungeons and Dragons are are weird and twisted and, and horrible because the mind flayers use their abilities to enslave their species in a, in an earlier time. So, yeah, it seems to me that in all these different conceptions of telepathy from fiction, you can basically break them down into two different categories of communication. Uh, linguistic and non-linguistic. Mm-hmm. So e- even the linguistic version, of course, is not involving written or spoken words, but it's silent uh, internal brain-to-brain communication without the senses that still somehow seems to be mediated through language. Like you hear a voice inside your head communicating with you through words or some other type of structured coded message. Mm-hmm. Then there's non-linguistic telepathy and that's communication that's not mediated by language. And I, I think this is more difficult to represent in fiction, but it's the kind we see more often uh, yeah. because it's the kind that's even stranger to 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 reality. You know, it, it's one thing to send a message into somebody's brain. You could accomplish almost the same thing by them just having a tiny earpiece you yeah. know, and talking into a microphone. But it's a different thing to download somebody's memories or to uh or to experience uncoded conceptual thought like the Gelfling dream fast I was talking about and that second kind I think is it may end up introducing some conceptual problems with the concept of telepathy that we can talk about more once we look at the science but uh so, so today we're going to be talking primarily about technologically enabled brain to brain communication or technologically enabled telepathy uh, because we, we should at least give a brief nod to the concept of paranormal telepathy. I don't think we need to spend a lot of time on this because I think by and large our listeners are, are scientific skeptics of one kind or another. Yeah, and I mean, there have been studies into paranormal um, telepathy, of course, and we could go through all of, all of those here today, but I, I think we pretty much decided that this would this would take time away from the uh, the more pressing studies we're going to discuss regarding technological telepathy. Yeah, so we'll just say very briefly that 
the scientific community has not been convinced that there's ever been any good evidence of telepathy from properly controlled studies. Lots of people have claimed to find evidence of telepathy, but usually when you look at these studies, they're not double-blinded. They're not being carried out with the kind of strict rigor you expect if you want to get a scientific result that that you can feel confidence in. Yeah. Uh, so, so by and large, we have not seen any convincing evidence that paranormal telepathy exists. There doesn't seem to be any known mechanism of action for that. So we will leave that to the side for today. Yeah, because when it comes to brain-to-brain communication, we have all of these other wonderful systems, and and, and equal. I mean, even more mind-blowing than 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 brain sending little waves, because we're communicating with language. We're communicating with all the the various expressions and micro expressions that are that are rippling across this uh, facial communication array that we all have. Yeah, it's one of those things that's. Uh, it, it can seem kind of silly to say it now, but really, just take a second and try to step back from human experience and feel the weirdness of language. Mm-hmm. It's Language is totally normal to us because we use it all the time, but just try to pretend you're not a creature that uses language and look at this from the universe's perspective. What a bizarre thing we're doing. Yeah. We're taking electrical patterns in our brain and then infecting other people with copies of those patterns by making waves in the air. Yeah. It, it's freaky. So setting aside any kind of naturally occurring, uh, you know, brainwave telepathy uh, situation going on, we're talking about using technology, using uh, the the technology that we've created and have access to, to uh, serve as a bridge between one mind and the next. Yeah. So you, you may be thinking like, well, wait a minute, how could you do this? Let us tell you a story. So for years now, scientists have been developing lots of different technologies for brain to computer interfaces, or or they're often known as BCIs, brain computer interfaces. And in physical terms, it makes sense that you can do this because the brain is an electrochemical machine. Things are happening inside the brain when you're thinking thoughts, when you're uh, performing behaviors, whenever your brain is doing something, there's electrical activity going on inside it that is uh, allowing that activity that external activity or that conscious thought to happen and its activities are expressed in ways for this reason that are detectable by machines that are sensitive to electromagnetism. Yeah, you have to get outside of this idea that your your mind is this magical soul orb that lives in a little meat house in your skull uh-huh. um and just start thinking about the meat house itself as yeah. as being the thing you know taking a very uh, uh you know direct approach uh to what are what what is going on with our mind? Yeah, not to not to downgrade the the beauty and mysteriousness of consciousness, which is a wonderfully powerfully strange thing. But when there's something happening in your brain, there is electricity concurrent with that. Right. And so if you can figure out how to measure that electricity, you can somehow represent it as data that's usable by technology. So what I've just been talking about is, is neuroimaging, various forms of neuroimaging to take what's going on in the brain and understand that with a computer. Say, okay, there's some electrical spiking in this part of the brain. Here's here's what's going on with the action potentials in, mm-hmm. in this cortical region. And then stimulate that same region in another individual's brain. Bingo. So in a sense, it's kind of like peeking behind one puppet theater, you know, out on the street like a Punch and Judy thing, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, seeing what uh, what manner of physical manipulations that puppet, ma- puppet master is making and then transmitting or relating those exact manipulations to a puppeteer within a second puppet theater. So that's a great analogy because it encapsulates both what you're trying to do and the limitations we have yeah. when we try to do this. And, and we'll talk more about the limitations at the end, but notice that, that what you just said would only really make sense if both puppet theaters were exactly the same size mm-hmm. and had exactly the same puppets. Right. And the same type of puppets. Yeah. And then the exact same um, method of manipulation. Right, yeah. which is not necessarily the case for the brain. But m- maybe you can get some kind of approximation yeah, you know, your brain isn't the exact same as somebody else's brain. Your puppet theater is different, but there are some general rules that operate in both puppet theaters that you can exploit. So uh, let's look at some of the technologies here. What what actual technology would you use if you want to scan somebody else's brain and see what's happening inside there? Uh, well, one of the most powerful methods we would have would be implanted electrodes. You can implant directly into somebody's brain 
cortical microelectrode arrays, uh, which are capable of, of recording what's going on in the brain and also what's known as intracortical microstimulation or ICMS. And this means you, you can get both input and output with the brain. So you can read the electrical activity to find out what's going on. And if you want to stimulate parts of the brain, you can p- provide little bits of electric current through these to light up that part of the brain. Uh, you can also use electrocorticography, which is electrodes on the exposed surface of the brain. If you okay. want to be really weirded out, Google pictures <laughs> of this. Uh, but if you don't want to cut your skull open. And I think most of us would prefer that method. Yeah. There, are, there are still other ways you can scan what's going on in the brain. I think typically they're not going to be as sensitive. So there's a drawback. The, the advantage is you don't have to go through brain surgery. The advantage, or the disadvantage is you're not going to get quite as much precision with the signals you're receiving. But you can use fMRI. So mm-hmm. that's, uh, functional magnetic resonance imaging. So it's like an MRI except you detect real-time activity in the brain by mapping blood flow to different parts of the brain. There's magnetoencephalography, which is great. Google pictures of this also. I, I love telling people to Google pictures of things. I think I do that pretty often. But this, this one is worth it because it's a, it's a system that detects magnetic field fluctuations caused by electrical activity in the brain. And it looks like you're wearing a hat the size of a car. You're kind of like you get in like the space jockey seat uh-huh. from Alien, and then you put on a hat that's as big as a van with tons of yeah wires and stuff. Yeah, yeah, it's gigantic, and it just goes over your head. And I guess it's got to be very sensitive to to detect what's going on with these tiny little electrical currents in your brain, but it does it. Yeah, and all of these are methods that I'm I'm sure that you've heard mentioned on this podcast before, or in other uh, you know science podcasts and science literature. These are standard means mm-hmm. of looking at the brain and figuring out what's going. On. Yeah. And then this very last one is going to be crucial in some of the studies we're talking about. It's electroencephalography or EEG. You've probably heard of this one before, but uh, this one is very appealing because you don't have to get into a chair with a hat the size of the car. Mm-hmm. Uh, you just put some electrodes on your scalp and the electrodes, they go on the skin on your head. They're really, really sensitive to electricity enough that they can read some of the electrical activity in your brain through your scalp. Though, obviously, like we said, it's not nearly as sensitive as implanted electrodes. Um, and then, of course, if you want to go. So that's all the ways we can read what's happening inside your brain. Right. Imagine we want to switch to input on the brain. How can we put things directly into your brain without the use of your senses? Well, of course, like we said, you can implant electrodes. So just put some go, get some brain surgery. Put those stimulators in your brain and give you little shocks when we want you uh, to experience something. You can use focused ultrasound, and that's high-frequency sound waves targeted at specific parts of the brain. That's experimental. It's been used in animals, but I mm-hmm. think it's it's not super cool to use this in humans yet. Yeah, and I should throw into like most people are familiar with with ultrasound probably from you know hearing about its you know use or witnessing participating in its use uh, to look inside an individual and see what's going on in their insides, particularly uh-huh. to look at a at a at a growing uh, fetus, right? Right, uh, and that just underlines that that. Ultrasound sound, depending on the frequency, can be used for something as as painless and and mundane as that. Yeah. Or it can be used at higher frequencies, much higher frequencies, to actually destroy tissue in the body, like yeah. targeting cancer cells. This is a this is more middle ground where uh-huh. we can use it to stimulate but not harm. <laughs> well, middle ground. It's comfortable middle ground when you're talking about your brain. Yeah, yeah. We're going to stimulate the tissue. We're not just going to look at it, but we're also not going to destroy it. Not enough to melt it, we promise. Uh, And then, of course, the last one we're going to mention is another one that's going to be important in the studies we talk about, which is transcranial magnetic stimulation, or TMS. And this is where you put a nice, friendly electromagnet against your skull, carefully Mm -hmm. aligned over the scalp to target a particular part of the brain, and it pulses with electromagnetism to stimulate electrical activity in the targeted region in your brain. Yeah, and this is, of course, the domain of the God helmet and, uh, and you know, countless studies out there. Anytime we're looking at, at you know, at, at what's physically going on in the brain versus what the experience of reality is, you often see this uh, technology employed. Yeah, and so for more than a decade now, we've seen experiments using methods like this to send messages 
to and from uh, to and from brains uh, between brains and computers. These are brain computer interfaces or BCIs. So you can get people to, say, control a robot arm with their minds or control a computer cursor with their minds. Mm -hmm. This is now pretty much conquered ground in science. We're still getting better at doing it and better at doing it with less invasive procedures. But it's a thing we can comfortably do in science and technology. Yeah, monkey moves a robot with its brain. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But what if instead of communicating with a robot arm or with a computer, you just substituted another brain? Hmm. Hmm. And that's where it, it gets kind of difficult to comprehend. Yeah. So... Stuff is going from inside your brain mm-hmm. through a computer to another brain and then back the other way. That sounds like you have suddenly discovered a technological basis for telepathy, sharing the contents of our brains or at least some form of brain activity without talking, mm-hmm. without text, w- without any external communication of any kind. It's brain to brain communication. All right. Well, let's let's launch into the studies. We'll get more into discussion of what this would be like, what the experience of melding your mind via technology would consist of. Uh, first, let's yeah, let's just launch into some of the the studies. Uh, most of them pretty recent studies. Yeah. Uh, dealing with technological telepathy. How about some rat to rat brain communication? That's what I'm talking about. Rat telepathy. Yeah. It's my favorite. How many great, are there any good novels about rat telepathy? They've got to be. Is that in Secret of Nim? Ooh, you know, there, uh, there are some rats in Dungeons and Dragons where, uh, and I love these guys. I forget what they're called offhand, but each individual rat has a rat intelligence, right? Uh-huh. But, uh, they have a, a certain amount of, of, uh, psychic ability. So you get two rats together, close together. Mm-hmm. And their minds melt and they have the intellect of like a, a double decker rat brain. But, you know, rats, uh, eventually they form large groups. Mm. Two's uh, company, three is Willard. Right. So you end up with a huge swarm of rats, but they, their brain power is all pooled together into a powerful intellect that's capable of launching, uh, you know, uh, psychic attacks, coordinated attack patterns. Yeah. Well, and also just like the mental energy, like they have so much mental power, they actually have paranormal abilities. Well, maybe the people who uh, created those for the Dungeons and Dragons manual uh, went ahead in a time machine to read about this study that was published in 2013 in Nature called A Brain-to-Brain Interface for Real-Time Sharing of Sensory Motor Information. So I'm not going to get too much into the details in the study because it was very long and there were multiple experiments described in the study with lots of different aspects to them that were all individually interesting but kind of technical. So I'll give you the broad overview. There are several different experiments and the basic idea is that you've got two rats, an encoder rat and a decoder rat. So you take both your rats and you train them on a task. Uh, For example, an LED light comes on over one of two levers, either a left lever or a right lever, and then you pick that lever, you pick the correct lever, and you get a reward. Now, once the rats had been trained on the basic task enough to, to be good at it, you split them up into encoders and decoders. These rats get electrodes implanted in their brains with wires running out of their heads So this probably is not an experiment you want to try on your friends at home. (laughs) Uh, But the encoder rat has a microelectrode array that can read its neuronal activity. So essentially it's measuring the electrical patterns between cells in the brain, like we were talking about earlier. And the decoder rat also has electrodes implanted in its brain for intracortical microstimulation, or ICMS, like we mentioned earlier. So the encoder rat gets the same familiar stimulus. Uh, For example... The, the LED over the left lever lights up and then it goes to press the correct lever to get its reward. It presses the left lever, but then the decoder rat gets its turn and it doesn't get a clear visual signal. Instead of the LED just popping up over the left lever, the LED lights come on over both levers. Instead, what happens is that the microelectrode array measures the first rat's brain activity. Then it runs that data through some analysis and amplification and sends the output straight down the wire into the ICMS equipment in the decoder rat's brain. Then the decoder rat's brain lights up in patterns correlated with the behavior of the encoder rat so that the decoder rat goes to choose a lever. And the translation wasn't 100% perfect. It Mm -hmm. didn't get it right every time, but it did a good bit better than chance. So through implanting electrodes in the brain, one rat teaches another rat 
which button to push from a separate room. This is rat-to-rat education with no external communication required. It's rat-brain-to-rat-brain teaching you how to get a reward. All right, and you only have to throw out the stimulus once. You only have to flip the switch once. It's like... It's like each rat is a string of Christmas lights, and you've just connected them together. Yeah, and so note that this study was complex. It involved a bunch of other interesting stuff as well, like uh, uh, commentary on the rats as a cooperative dyad computing team, and then <laughs> uh, uh, stuff about uh, feedback from one rat to the other, like the, the encoder rat also getting positive feedback or reward for when the decoder rat did things right. But anyway, so this is the creation of a rat-to-rat brain-to-brain interface, which they called a BTBI. And this is a pretty cool study. One of the things I found very interesting is they said, quote, it remains to be explained how the brain simultaneously integrates information generated by direct ICMS and by natural stimuli, for example, real whisker stimulation. Mm -hmm. And that's referring to a second test they did where uh, the rats were supposed to judge real versus virtual uh, width of an opening by by touch on the whiskers. Okay, because they're essentially incorporating both natural stimuli and this new, um, you know, unnatural stimuli, if you yeah. will, into a into their single experience. Right. So, how does the rat like? What's w- imagine you are the rat, mm-hmm. and how does the rat differentiate between uh, between Stimulation coming in through the the brain that's just like the the brain being electrically stimulated and the real sensory information it's getting from its eyes and its whiskers. Hmm. Can it tell the difference? Hmm. How, how does that information get put together? We don't really know because we have not done such experiments on humans for obvious reasons. Right. So we don't know what the experience is like for the rat, but it's at least powerful enough that the rat can perform tasks based on this incoming brain information. But I, you know, rat to rat is one thing. Yeah. I think we need to do some cross species telepathy. Yeah. We want to get a little, uh, willardy here and, uh, talk about, um, human to rat mind control. And this, uh, study, uh, is titled non-invasive brain to brain interface establishing functional links between two brains. This is from April, 2013. And, uh, in this uh, particular study, a U.S. South Korean team investigated uh, that classic question: uh, How might a human wag a rat's tail <laughs> using only their brain and brain-to-brain interface system that uh, that shockingly uh, uh, requires no surgical implantation? So, in this particular experiment, this is how it went down: First, the human controller is hooked up to um to to that uh, EEG uh, based brain computer interface again we're talking uh, electroencephalography um it's uh in this a monitoring system generally it's based on scalp based electrodes to record uh, electrical activity of the brain mm-hmm. then they hook the rat up to a focused ultrasound based computer to brain interface okay and uh th- these again have high frequency sound waves uh that are uh, that are going into the tissue uh, not enough to do any damage. Uh, next, they hit the human with some visual stimulation to invoke a little uh, steady state visually evoked potential. So we're talking strobe light flashes here. Uh-huh. Uh, the researchers were then able to identify the same burst frequency in the human's brain. Okay. Then the human's uh, BCI detects this and then transfers that uh, that same pattern uh, to the focused ultrasound-based CBI on the rat, targeting the region of the rat's brain that controls its tail. And this causes the tail to move with the same frequency that's flashing through the human's mind, the same frequency that's flashing on the strobe lights. Creepy. Yeah. And uh, they use Braver six- rat. Yeah. <laughs> They used six different humans and six different rats in this uh, experiment with a 94% success rate. So, they, I mean, the, a lot of these experiments, they may not seem all that amazing uh, when you break it down into these simple parts, but you really have to look at what's being done, and most importantly, what's being done completely non-invasively. Uh, if it seems simple, that's because the experiment breaks down thought and action into simple components. Yeah. Which is always kind of both overwhelming and underwhelming at the same time when you when you see something that we think of as magical, like thought, b- broken down into the physical actions that constitute it. It just kind of seems like really that's all there is. All right. So what's next on the plate then? We've gone uh, we've gone rat to rat. We've gone human to rat. 
What's next? Oh, we got to go human to human. Oh, okay. Okay, so uh, here was another study came out in 2014 called Conscious Brain-to-Brain Communication in Humans Using Non-Invasive Technologies, published in uh, PLOS One. And here are the basics. You got a sender in India and recipients in France. Ooh. Uh, so here we're, we're the sender wears an EEG cap, like we're saying. Stuff on the scalp detects electrical activity in the brain. And the recipients sit under a different thing than we've seen before, one of those transcranial magnetic stimulation coils or TMS coils. And uh, and like I said earlier, what this does is it generates an electromagnetic field, so it stimulates the brain with electrical activity. At the sender's end, there are some code words. So the sender with the EEG cap gets code words chow and hola, a couple of different kind of uh, <laughs> European hellos. And had to translate them into binary code. So that's ones and zeros or on and off switches. And then the sender had to think about different actions to represent each one and zero in the string to spell the word. So, for example, thinking about moving your hands could be a one and thinking about moving your feet could be a zero. And then they thought out the binary string. So if to spell Ola, it would be like, you know, zero, one, zero. You'd have to think about feet and then think about moving your hands and then think about moving your feet. But on and on, as you would have to do to spell the whole word. So the EEG measured those different electrical patterns, sent them to the computer, and then that was sent 5,000 miles over the Internet to the recipient's TMS coils. The TMS coils caused the recipients to experience, this is great, phosphenes or visions of light. So you're sitting under this coil, you're sitting in the chair, and suddenly you might see dots or lines, sort of uh, visual light hallucination patterns pop up in your vision. And it's caused by when the, the pulses of electromagnetism come through the TMS coil. And so different kinds of visions translated into ones and zeros of code. And once you got your string of ones and zeros from the TMS code, you could translate that back into text from the binary code and thus brain-to-brain communication of coded messages in language was achieved over 5,000 miles. Hmm. Uh, you see some of the media reports. It sounds like they're kind of gushing over the fact that it was 5,000 miles, like the distance matters a lot. Yeah, when it just I comes down to use of the Internet. You know? Yeah, exactly. To me, maybe there's something I didn't understand, but to me the, the distance didn't really seem to matter. I mean, once you've got a, a, a decoded brain signal on the Internet sent to somebody else and then recoded back into the message it was supposed to be, it's the Internet. I mean, yeah. Why does it matter if it's one mile or a hundred miles or a thousand miles? Yeah, exactly. But anyway, th- that that's some human to human text communication. But then there's another one. And this one uh, got some interesting media attention. I actually wrote about this last year for a forward thinking video, but it was also published in PLOS one. And it was called a direct brain to brain interface in humans. And this involves a video game. Oh, good. So good. it's co- it's cooperative gaming. No, I, it didn't sound like a very good video game. Okay. Oh, yes. Like it's a, one, I'm looking at the image right now. It's one of these video games. Yeah. Yeah. It sounded like, I think it was one of those free video games. No, I, I, it may have been designed purposefully for this study. I don't know. It looks, it looks kind of boring. Yes. <laughs> so in 2014, researchers at the University of Washington published this study showing they were, uh, they were able to establish a non-invasive brain-to-brain interface between people which allowed them to cause movements in a different person's body without speech across the Internet to play the game. Hmm. Uh, so it, it works this way. One person sits in a room with the ability to look at a screen. Okay. The screen has the game on it. And what you see on the game is that there's a pirate ship launching rockets at a city. And you've got control of a cannon that can shoot down the rockets if you time the cannon shot right. So you got to wait until the pirate ship shoots a rocket. And then when it does, you shoot your cannon to shoot the rocket and knock it out of the sky. Pretty simple, right? Yeah. But the problem is you can't press a button. The only person who has a controller to control the game is in a different room across the campus, All right. in a different building, like so you're a mile have to away. Send or some thoughts to them to push the button. Exactly right. So you are sitting there watching the screen of the game with an EEG cap on your head, 
And when you see that it's time to press that button to shoot down the rocket, you think, move my hand. You don't move your hand, you just think, move my hand. The EEG cap records that and says, oh, okay, it's time, sends that information across the Internet to the room, which has the other person sitting in it. Now, this person cannot see the screen that the game is being played on, but this person has the ability to press the button to fire the rocket. And when the, uh, the, when the timing is right, when the signal arrives, it activates a TMS coil that causes their hand to jerk. And when that causes their hand to jerk, they press a button that says fire the rocket. That signal goes back to the game and fires the rocket. So you have to, <laughs> so neither one can play the game alone. Mm-hmm. They have to cooperate to play the game and they can't talk about it. It's just thought to thought to action. All right, I, I think that makes that makes sense. I think everybody's uh, following along with that. So, uh, so what was the success rate like? How did the, how did these uh, weirdly conjoined individuals um, perform in this simple game? Uh, so, there were three pairs of subjects, and they correctly identified and destroyed eighty three point three percent, twenty five percent, and thirty seven point five percent of the rockets respectively, during the the experimental games, and then they had a 0% success rate during control games. Uh, So they did better in the experimental games where real information was being transmitted than in the control games when it wasn't. So there are several takeaways from this. One of the things that I think is interesting about this is that the receiver's action is not conscious. They're not thinking, they're not getting a message that they're decoding. They're just being caused to jerk. All right. So they're not hearing a voice in their head that's saying, saying, shoot it now, push the button now, push the button now. It's just happening. No, they're, they're getting some magnetism that says, uh, and <laughs> suddenly their hand moves and they press a button. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are three takeaways that the uh, authors of the study came up with. So they said one of the takeaways from the study is that We've got the technology now that's sufficient to develop devices for rudimentary brain-to-brain communication. Uh, so that's one of the things they say they've demonstrated. It's already here. We can do it now, though it is rudimentary. The second thing they point out is that working brain-to-brain interfaces can be built out of non-invasive technologies. Neither person here required a, a brain implant. Right. Uh, they It was EEG to the transcranial magnetic stimulation. And then the third thing they point out is that this is very rudimentary, but the fact that it can be done at all means we need to start having a conversation between ethicists, neuroscientists, and regulatory agencies on the ethical, moral, and societal implications of BBIs. Uh, they're, they're talking there about the ones that could grow in the future out of the rudimentary technologies that are being developed now. Yeah, yeah, setting the stage for the whole world of neurosecurity, right? Neurosecurity, uh, protecting our, our, our thoughts and emotions and true feelings from all those uh, technologically enhanced scanners out there. Yeah. Now, there, there's an even more recent study on this. Right. There was one that came out just in September of this year, in September 2015, where... It was uh, not exactly the same group, but most of the same scientists. Uh, some of the same authors from that that previous one uh, published again in PLOS One a study called "Playing Twenty Questions with the Mind: Collaborative <laughs> Problem Solving by Humans Using a Brain-to-Brain Interface." And it was a setup a lot like the last one. It, it was pretty much just the same with uh, Cinder with EEG and a receiver using a transcranial magnetic stimulation coil. But instead, what they did here, instead of playing a video game together, they got them to trade coded messages in order to play a game of 20 questions without talking. Okay, so this is communication that goes beyond merely just push that button, push that button. Right, and but it's still, one of the things worth pointing out is that it is still coded communication. Now, mm-hmm. they had a pretty high success rate. Uh, the, the setup is a, is a whole lot like the last experiment. You've got, a, you've got a sender wearing an EEG cap to read their brain, and you've got a receiver under a TMS coil to, uh, to give them information. Except what's different here is that instead of the TMS coil giving somebody a jerk hand movement in the hand, it gives them what we were talking about earlier, a phosphine, a vision, Mm -hmm. and they can use that to decode information sent by the person in in the EEG cap. And by trading information back and forth this way, by uh, being able to answer yes or no questions by sending them a phosphine or not, 
these people can ask and answer questions to play a game of 20 questions to guess an object uh, without any words or language. So the basic idea is, say you have a parakeet in mind. The person asks a question that they select from a square, from a screen like, can this thing fly? And then the person in the EEG cap gives a stimulus by looking at two different lights to answer yes or no. And then that goes back to the person who answered the question and they get, uh, they get a sense of whether the answer is yes or no by whether or not they get this vision of light from the, from the coil. And by going back and forth this way, they can solve the puzzle and eventually figure out what the object is. And this setup allowed the people in the experimental group to win 72% of the games. And so there's a control group where no genuine information was being traded back and forth. And only 18% of those participants were able to correctly identify the object. Okay. So pretty cool. This is 20 questions without words. Well, actually, no, there were words because you had to select the questions to go back and forth. But the answers didn't require words. It was just coded brain signals. Yeah, flashes of light in the mind. Yeah. Okay. So uh, the authors themselves point out a couple of limitations at the end. One of them is that the the kind of obvious thing is that this doesn't necessarily provide any better communication than talking. Right. It's, it's, <laughs> it feels very hamstrung that you're having to 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 rely on this uh, convoluted method of flashes when, right. when really be, we have far better means of communication at our disposal. Yeah, it'd be much easier to play the game by uh, by text messages or, yeah. or just by talking. But they point out how, well, even something like this could probably help in somebody who has, uh, for example, the inability to move or speak, if they right. broke his aphasia or something like that. Um, or if it's being played between people who don't speak the same language. So, so that, that's a possibly a good point. But then they also point out that this is just sort of a proof of concept for technologies that could become much more power and powerful and sensitive in the future. And, yeah. and that's the real question. Building upon this. Yeah. Yeah. And then the other thing they point out is a limitation of their own study is that it doesn't allow bi-directional transfer of information. The, the information is going from one person to the other. But it would be very interesting to hook up both the sender and the recipient, or both people at least, with both capabilities. So you've got an EEG and a TMS coil, and you can send information back and forth both ways, which is when things would really start getting creepy. All right, so there's a taste of, of where we are with the te- with the with the research and the technology, where and and, and an idea of where we may be going. So, yeah. how do we prepare for it? What's it going to be like as these uh, more advanced uh, telepathic technologies become available and even become a part of our life? Well, I, I think it's interesting because it's a question whether these have really changed uh, that concern we brought up at the beginning of the episode about linguistic versus non linguistic telepathy. Um, if, if it's just saying that you will be able to send coded messages like like this kind of binary morse code type thing we were talking about earlier between brains that's one thing mm-hmm. if it were to somehow become the case that you could send something more complex and difficult to quantify like a a a, a non-encoded thought or memory or something like that that would be very interesting but i don't know if that's even possible because like we talked about with our puppet theater analogy, your puppet theater is not exactly the same right. as somebody else's puppet theater. They can't just put electrodes in your brain and say, well, I'm going to share this uh, this image by lighting up exactly the same neurons in your brain that are lit up in somebody else's brain. You don't have the same neurons as them. Everybody's brain is going to be a little bit different. So I, I'm not sure how that would even work without some kind of encoding back and forth. And this is something that's been pointed out in some of the criticism of these studies and the supposed implications of it. Again, they are just sending coded messages, right? It's still basically language. It's not emotions, ideas, thoughts. The, the one about making the hand jerk or making the tail wag is kind of interesting yeah, because uh, that's motor control. But for the most part, these are situations where you could still lie. It's not like it's, oh, this direct, uh, you know, unfiltered communication system. Yeah. But what would that be like? That, that's the thing I keep coming back to. What would what would it be like to have this communal mind experience with uh, someone else? And in researching this, I uh, came across a really cool um, Ian Magazine article by Peter Watts uh, titled Hive Consciousness. And uh, 
in this, he points out that uh, the brain that makes us who we are, mm-hmm. uh, you know, essentially it, quote, spreads across two cerebral hemispheres connected by uh, the corpus callosum, a fat, meaty pipe more than 200 million uh, axons thick. Yeah, this sort of the idea that y- you've already got two brains in a way. Yeah. Yeah, and in fact, he points out that if you were to cleave these hemispheres in two, and that's indeed a, a, lat, a last ditch uh, surgery that you sometimes uh, uh, see employed uh, to, deal, to deal with certain forms of epilepsy, uh, each half would go its own way, developing its own tastes and beliefs. And to support this, he points to uh, uh, a talk that was given by uh, noted uh, neuroscientist uh, Vilanyo Ramachandran at the 2006 Beyond Belief Conference. And you can find video of this on YouTube. I'll try and link to uh, the clip on uh-huh. the landing page for this episode at StuffToBlowYourMind.com. But Ramachandran points, uh, uh, he, he shares an account of a split-brain patient with a Christian hemisphere and an atheist one. Uh, <laughs> and they, they have to end up having to teach the hemispheres to communicate uh, with each other. So the uh, the general idea here, I think, was that he's saying that the corpus callosum helps uh, homogenize the two different brains. Right. It creates the conscious illusion that your hemispheres are in accord with one another. But if you're able to sever them and you don't have this high bandwidth connection between them, they're very much two different minds. Yeah, and it's not a gradual separation either. It's not like a musical duo breaking up and then each struggles for years to find their own solo identity. You know, this side of the brain eventually becomes atheist and this side eventually becomes a, a believer. No, scientists can actually induce hemispheric uh, isolation chemically in the brain, just shutting it down uh, uh, and uh, and then watching just w- without any delay the, the undrugged hemisphere sort of coming into its own, becoming the primary... Uh, uh, decider, uh, developing a whole new uh, pers- uh, personality right there in front of us. So, like, I, I anesthetize your left brain, and I suddenly see your right brain evil twin emerge as the dominant personality, which was really only half of you before. Yeah, it reminds me of a, a character in the culture book by Ian M. Banks, Consider Phlebas. Uh, there's a character named uh, 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 Craiklin who has uh, enhanced hemispheric task division in his brain. What? And basically, he sleeps with one eye open. He can use a unihemispheric <laughs> sleep, much like a you know, a, a, like many animals out there that never completely put their brain under. Uh-huh. Uh, so one third of the time, one half of his brain sleeps, and he's a bit dreamy and vague. Another third of the time, he's all logic and numbers and doesn't communicate all that well. And only one third of the time is he fully awake with both sides of his brain making up who he is. Oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so it's, it's interesting to think of it in terms of Ramachandran's example. He, he jokingly pointed out what happens if this individual dies? Does half his brain go to heaven and one half go to hell? And, uh, <laughs> and, and it, it makes us ask some difficult questions about consciousness itself, uh, because consciousness remains something of a mystery and when we have a hell of a time unraveling. And as uh, author R. Scott Bacher points it, we're trying to explain the magic of a coin trick, right? But we're in a, a horrible position because we are the magic that we're trying to understand, we're trying to explain. So, with consciousness, you mean? Yeah, with consciousness. Yeah. and then, But ultimately, with any, any t- time we try and tackle our uh, you know our, our cognition and our and, uh, and and our brain activity and certainly if we try to translate it into another being or try to bring two of them together we have to we have to unravel the magic of the human experience yeah well we mentioned this earlier i mean w- when you start under understanding consciousness for some reason is kind of a scary thing yeah like we we like this magical illusion of the unified self to to persist and mm-hmm. when you start separating consciousness into constituent parts or understanding i mean we I, i'm not saying we fully understand consciousness but even understanding little bits that might inform how it comes together it's a little alarming. You yeah. don't like the idea that your consciousness can be explained via, you know, a, a combination of different processes in the brain. But one of the scary things here is, is the implication going back to brain to brain interfaces that what if combining different brains with technology in different skulls can, will become just as seamless as combining the two hemispheres of your brain via the corpus callosum. Yeah. Uh, and it's such that maybe, uh, our producer Noel and our, uh, other co-host Christian would link their brains up via computer and it wouldn't feel like they were two different brains connected. It would just feel like they were one brain. 
Yeah, like essentially it would be like um, you know, like a Voltron scenario, yeah. or um, it, or or like an assemblage of of keywords. So like, oh, we we need somebody who's really good at maritime law, uh, but we also need somebody who really is really tuned into pop culture, and we need them to go out and speak. Well, what can we do? Well, let's just take these two individuals, hook them up together, and make them manifest uh, a new individual who is a perfect um, uh, you know convergence of those two uh, skill sets. Yeah. Now, I, now again, I want to say, who knows if such a thing is possible? Yeah. We don't want to get too. Uh to uh, hype heavy here and suggest that we we've now demonstrated that it's possible to link brains up in a way that they seamlessly combine. But just the mere possibility of that is a very like a uh, human experience changing proposition. Yeah. And when, what are the legal ramifications? So if, if me, if you and I, if we uh, conjoined our brains with some fancy helmets and essentially became this different mind state and then that mind state, broke a law or invented something, <laughs> you know, who owns that invention? Right. Who's, who's yeah. responsible for that crime? And then it gets even weirder if you look at our own brains and think of it as two uh, halves of brains that are connected together. It's like which individual has the right to exist and even has personhood, the the uh, the Joe Robert being Joe Robert or the two halves uh, of Joe in your head and the two halves of Robert in mine. Right. I mean, do you think it's possible for one hemisphere of your brain to conspire to kill the other one? <laughs> yeah, or sue it, or right. or get a, some sort of a, a yeah a, a neural divorce. Yeah, we'll be all right brain from now on. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, anyway, if we've got you worried about this, uh, based on this final discussion, it it is a good thing to consider in the long run. But please do remember that these these experiments we've been talking about in this episode. Don't indicate anything like right. that yet. Like we, we certainly don't want to get into the overhype machine. The, the, the types of communication. Yeah, not the going, overhype machine, but maybe the over uh, dream machine. You right. can like take yeah. these and run wild with the possibilities, but don't you know? Yeah. Don't worry the, about it. This is still super, super rudimentary yeah. communication. Like we said, it, it's it's very coded. Uh, it requires uh, extremely bulky and and difficult and expensive equipment, and it's it's. It's impressive in one sense that it can be done at all, but what can be done with it is not that impressive yet. Indeed. Who knows how impressive it will be, or is impressive the right word? Who knows how daunting and uh, and mind-bending it will be. Yeah, game-changing. All right, well, there you have it. Uh, a little exploration into technological telepathy and some of the possible near-future and far-future uh, ramifications. <laughs> Oh, looks like we have uh, an update coming in. We don't have a, a lot of these uh, roll into the uh, the podcast, but uh, here's one right now. All right, this is uh, this has to do with our recent episode, December seventeenth, I believe, um, Grand Theft Genome: Gene Stealers in the Wild, in which uh, Joe and I explored several examples of horizontal gene transfer. Yeah, that's the process where genes from one organism travel into another organism that is not its direct offspring, but some other contemporary creature living at the same time. Yeah, and uh, one of the creatures we discussed is the the tardigrade, the water bear, the uh, moss piglet. Yeah. Yeah, a uh, perennial favorite here. Yeah, yeah, very cool animal. Uh, and we were drawing on a November 23rd, 2015, University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill study. Uh, this is the one where they claimed that the tardigrade possessed nearly one-sixth or 17.5% foreign DNA. That amounts to about... 6,600 genes of uh, pilfered genetic goodness. This is a remarkable claim that up to one-sixth of of this organism's DNA came from foreign sources. So not from its parents or its parents' parents, but other organisms that lived around it. Yeah, and as we discussed in the episode, this ties, it's, a, it's an amazing fact, so we pounced on it, uh, and it and it ties into this idea of the tardigrade as this ultra-hardy organism that may have stolen some of its, uh, acquired some of its uh, its hardiness yeah. from uh, hardy bacteria. Or Actually, to be clear on what I just said, the the idea was that it, so it did get it from its parents and parents' parents, but they got it right. from other organisms. It wasn't just a direct lineal uh, uh, passing along of genes in the same branch of the evolutionary tree. Yeah. 
So we weren't the only ones who were amazed by it. We weren't the only ones to to pounce on it, uh, yeah. because in the weeks that followed, a second team from the University of Edinburgh, who were also sequencing the tardigrade genome, chimed in and reported that they'd found very few horizontally transferred genes in the tardigrade, between 36 and 500. And uh, their charge is that 30% of the UNC genome probably came from contaminating microbes. So in other words they think that their results were contaminated with random bacteria from the lab. Yeah, and this is a problem that, of course, can happen when you're dealing with microbiology. Typically, scientists do a lot to try to rule out these types of errors. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I think we can assume that the the UNC team was doing their best, like they were doing good work. But at least this cross-comparison of results shows that whatever measures they put in place, at some point they must have failed. Yeah. And, you know, this is what we're observing here ultimately is not it's this is not a soap opera. This is right. uh, this is science working the way it's supposed to. If somebody makes a mistake if, uh, or may have made a mistake, then someone else can chime in and say, hey, our study says something a little differently. Let's uh, let's see where the truth lies. Yeah. And hopefully by uh, comparing and synthesizing the results of these two studies, we can figure out not just what the truth about the tardigrade genome is and how much horizontal gene transfer has informed its lineage, but also help hone the types of procedures that these experimenters are using because, you know, learning from our mistakes is one of the best ways to get better at doing science. Uh, before we uh, head out here, I just want to remind everyone, head on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com if you want to check out all the uh, podcast episodes, all the videos, blog posts, links out to our social media accounts. It's all there. And in the meantime, how how can they get in touch with us? Uh, how can they uh, how can they communicate the contents of their brain to our brains via the magic of the Internet? Well, you can use some good old Stone Age linguistic technology and type out an email and send it to us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.